0: coming up on The Modern Hotelier. The younger generation, they prefer vacation rentals over hotel rooms because of the experience aspect. That group is very much into experiences, photography, individualism, and they can kind of showcase what's unique versus a hotel room, which is fairly
1: generic. Hello, and welcome to The Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi, your all-in-one modern operating system for independent hotels. Each episode, we'll get to know an industry expert and we'll discuss the latest trends in hospitality to help you, the modern hotelier. Welcome to The Modern Hotelier, presented by Stay Flexi. I'm your host, David Malilli. And I'm Steve Karen. Steve, who do we have on the program today?
2: David, today we have on Steve Milo, the founder and CEO of VTrips. Uh, Steve has quite an interesting background. He started as an entrepreneur back when he was 19. Then he worked at Marvel and in e-commerce before getting into the vacation rental business. He's growing VTrips from one vacation rental to now over 7,000. Welcome to the show, Steve. Hey, thank you, David.
1: Thank you, Steve. You're welcome. So we're going to go through three sections. Uh, We're going to go through a quick section about asking you some personal questions. We're going to go through your career, and then we're going to ask you some industry topic questions. We're going to get started. So what was your first job?
0: My very first job was uh, actually delivering donuts door to door. Um, (laughs) I think I made like 50 cents a box of donuts. So uh, nice job at 10 years old. Who did you admire growing up? Well, I was actually a big comic book fan. So I guess Stan Lee would have been my, uh, the admiration, you know, he was the writer and creator of a lot of the, the Marvel comics and heroes that we know today that are all in the movies. What's the best piece of
1: advice you've received?
0: I remember my dad introduced me to, uh, an investment banker, right after I graduated, uh, college and, uh, we had lunch together and he said, uh, save your money.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Who would a person be that you'd want to switch places with for a day?
0: Boy, I think it would be fun to be uh, Patrick Mahomes, be able to throw touchdown passes 70 yards, have that kind of athletic ability. I never was that fortunate to have that kind of ability.
1: He's amazing. What's a secret talent that you have that nobody knows you have?
0: Boy, you know, that's that's an interesting question. I think what I've learned is I've got a very strong analytical mind and um I've kind of done some testing that indicates that my analytical abilities are pretty much in the top tier. And uh, I didn't realize that early on.
1: The favorite place you've ever visited?
0: I think it's Kyoto. What scares you? Not a big fan of snakes. (laughs) Same,
1: same. (laughs) And what's something you wish you were better at?
0: At this point, I wish I was uh, a little bit more agile. I'm uh, losing uh, sometimes balance as I move along, but i you know try to exercise a lot and try
1: to keep it up. If you could have a superpower, what superpower would you like to have? Mind reading. Yeah, that's a good one. We've had one other person that said that but that's, that's a great one.
2: Well, perfect. That was great, Steve. So now we're going to get to learn a, a little bit more about you. So, where did you grow
0: up? You know, basically I grew up in the Washington DC area. Oh, okay. So, uh, in a county called Fairfax County and a town called Vienna and I lived in went to school in the Virginia area.
2: Awesome. I lived in D.C. for eight years, lived in Arlington for a few years as well. So how did growing up in, in Vienna shape who you are today?
0: Well, I mean, I, I think where I grew up, my dad was fortunate enough to get a job that landed us in a middle-class neighborhood. And uh, there were a lot of opportunities for me to make money at an early age. So you know, I delivered donuts, and then I started mowing lawns. And then when I got a car, I started to be able to take on other jobs, including um, ultimately starting a kind of a comic book collecting business where I would go to conventions and buy and sell and trade. So it was pretty interesting, you know, that time of my life because there were a lot of kids who didn't really want to work, but there was plenty of opportunities for those who did.
2: Most people work in the government around that area. Were you ever tempted to get into to the government side of things?
0: No. No, <laughs> no I, uh, that was not part of my vision. Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: So you got your degree from University of Virginia in Commerce. What led you to pick that university? And tell us if you weren't involved in any organizations or any, any activities at that university.
0: You know, I can't say that there was a whole lot of deliberation on that. My father paid a little bit of my tuition, but I ended up paying the bulk of it and living expenses. So going out of state was not an option and uh university of virginia had the the best business and economics in the state so i applied early decision got in and part of some of the stuff i did there and um even in in high school was i was involved in um political campaigns early on at the local level and in the university of virginia would be local issues like we advocated for um a fall break, there were a lot of student mental health issues, and um, there were a lot of stress related illnesses and additional meal plans and flexibilities, things like that that were very issue oriented. And, you know, that's something that I've been able to continue as I've moved forward, obviously, with V trips, you know, kind of advocacy of issues. Did you travel
2: a lot growing up? Or did that kind of come later in life?
0: Yeah, that most of the travel came later. My my dad was great about taking us to uh, the beach. We'd go to Ocean City. So if you grew up there, you know, everybody went to Ocean City and that was fun. But I can't say there was a whole lot of adventure outside of a driving radius. Uh, and most of it was over to Ocean City or down to Nags Head and Hatteras. So those were kind of the places they would take us for
1: vacation. You've been involved in a lot of advocacy efforts and community development. So any other areas in there that you want to talk about or discuss that you've done as far as when you were growing up?
0: Well, that was the main thing, right? So once I got out of college, I was pretty monofocused on business. Really, the um, evolution of advocacy didn't start until I got into the vacation rental industry. And early on when I started, I was in an area called Venice, Florida. And Venice, Florida allowed vacation rentals. And then All of a sudden, I was advertising. I built a website and I had uh, ads on VRBO. And before that time, it was pretty hard for people to even know where to rent a vacation rental. Now, all of a sudden, there was a website, and uh, the citizens of Venice decided they didn't like vacation rentals because they didn't want strangers living next door. And all of a sudden, I started to get involved in city council politics. I didn't anticipate getting as involved in advocacy as I've been, but that was the start. And, you know, just in the last year, um I had a uh, you know, meeting with a group of property managers with Governor DeSantis. We've had meetings with the Speaker of the House and the Speaker of the Senate of Florida. I've been involved with a lot of high-level people starting advocacy in Texas and in Georgia, and it's been a big area of emphasis now. You know, it's not really a Republican-Democrat issues. It's really more of a I'd say constitutional, you know, property rights. You know, what you believe is your rights if you own a piece of property and what are the rights of governments to take those rights away.
2: Hello, my name is Steve and director of sales at state Flexi and the co-host of the Modern Hotelier. State Flexi is a modern all-in-one system for hotels and vacation rentals. It's a built-in channel manager, PMS, booking engine, POS, revenue manager, and a magic link where your guests will receive a text message or email that has a link that's live throughout the whole state so your guests will be able to check in, add any products or experiences onto their stay while they're in-house, and then use that link to also check out. Stay Flexi Flexi. is built to be flexible to accommodate the modern guests while also being easy to use so any hotelier can pick it up quickly. Shoot me an email at steve.karen at stayflexi.com or message me on LinkedIn to learn more or set up a demo. Thanks so much and enjoy this episode of The Modern Hotelier. So good to get to know you a little bit. Now we're gonna jump in into your career more along the background and then we'll work to V-Trips. But it seems like you're a natural entrepreneur. You know, at 18 you started a comic book wholesale company, it seems like, and to help pay for college and turn that into a $15 million a year business. How how did you start the company? I, I know you are a big fan of comic books and have been collecting since you were 12. But how did this turn into a business? And how did you end up growing this business? The story is just awesome.
0: Well, there came a time where I had a pretty large collection of comic books. And I went to a comic book convention. And all of a sudden, even before the doors opened, I had dealers buying stuff left and right. Finally, I asked one of the people who bought all this stuff, you know, how come I had so many people before the door open and he said, well, you didn't price things correctly. <laughs> so the dealers in the room noticed you were new and they took advantage of you. So I made quite a bit of money and, you know, I was kind of curious about this whole concept of being able to essentially understand the market where you could buy low and, and then make a markup. So I started talking to a, a dealer and they gave me some tips on publications where you could buy stuff wholesale and different areas where you could buy comic books at a discount. And so I decided based on that to just try to play with, you know, rebuying from the proceeds I made and that became scalable. And, um, when I was in the university of Virginia, I couldn't really do as many conventions because they were kind of scattered all over the place, but I could run ads in these, uh, trade publications. And so I started to have a business literally out of my dorm room. Where I was buying at wholesale and then selling at retail. And that's kind of the origin of, of how the, uh, the another universe started it was really out of my dorm room.
2: Sure. And then you continued to grow that after college as well, right?
0: Yeah, it became quite a large business. I mean, we had 200 employees, we had two to three catalogs a month, we got into some retail stores. And we got in early on the e commerce, you know, we, we had a e commerce store, as early as 1996, which was fairly early for e-commerce in that period of time, and um, the biggest problem we had was the paper business was coming to an end. So it was all over, you know, really the country where paper was starting to decline. You know, here comic books had been in place forever, but that 90s was a transition where you started to see people heading towards digital entertainment, gaming, etc and um it was fascinating to watch what was happening but i clearly knew i was in the wrong industry not that comic books didn't evolve into digital entertainment they have but you know this was before the spider-man movie and um, iron man etc this was before that wave of digital entertainment that transformed marvel into the intellectual property it is today this was just you know comic books that you would see on, you know, racks in a drugstore, racks in a comic book store.
2: Did you have a comic book that I guess was a very rare comic book or or one that sticks out that you're like, wow, that
0: was a good one or or <laughs> it was a rare one? Well I remember it was pretty hard to get the first Spider-Man. So that was an accomplishment. Wow. Yeah. Uh you know, I I had a pretty big collection at one point and uh ultimately just bought and sold. I'd say, you know, the most interesting part of the nineties was meeting some of the writers and artists. I mean, I met obviously all the the people like Stan Lee and Steve Ditko and people like that. But then the new wave like Frank Miller and Alan Moore, Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, we would have signings and these guys would come down for not a lot and then they would sign and you'd take them out to dinner and they were very gracious just to to get out and, and publicize their work. So we probably had over well over 100 different signings. And I got to meet a lot of really amazing, talented
1: individuals that are still active today. So from there, you went on to become president of New Media for Marvel Comics. What kind of projects did you work on at that position?
0: Well, that was the internet uh, early on. And I have to say, I was brought in to kind of clean up uh, kind of a mess. They were trying to spend their digital off separately from their publishing, which was a good idea. It was just too early in 99. And the whole idea was to spin it off and put it into a brand new company and IPO it. But the window closed at the beginning of 2000. We had the internet bubble that kind of burst. And so they were stuck where they had hired almost 100 people for this digital marvel.com. And so they brought me in to kind of try to solve and figure out what the business model was. So I spent about a year there, ultimately recommended to the board of directors that they fold this back in that the content piece could report in the publishing, that the licensing piece could report in the sales and advertising, and that the um, IT piece could you know, fold into their tech piece within the publishing side. They just were too early at that point, and they just were, were not ready to be a digital media company.
2: From there, I think this is so cool. You just went backpacking in uh, Southeast Asia for, for a couple months. Anything that was just stuck out to you from that trip or, or even that you learned about yourself while backpacking?
0: Yeah, it was pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> I'd say the best tip I ever got was uh, I was backpacking through Anger Watt and uh, smart enough to hire a guide. And the guide said, don't go off the the paths. There's these trails. Do not vary from them. Even if you need to use the bathroom, do not do it. And I said, why? And he's like, there's still unexploded landmines. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Uh, because Cambodia had been occupied by the Khmer Rouge up until, um, I think, the late 70s, uh, early 80s. So there were still, even in Angkor Wat, which was this uh, kind of city that was recovered from the jungle, there were just unexploded landmines buried throughout Cambodia. So that was a pretty valuable tip.
2: Yeah. So you stayed on the on the path, I'm assuming.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't go venturing off uh, anywhere.
2: Well, that's good. That's good. So after backpacking, you were the executive vice president a consumer applications for iMatic. And then you were again the director or you're the director of e-commerce at Bradford Group. What did you learn from those roles that helped you, you know, kind of start your own company?
0: Well, iMatic was one where I thought it was important. That I learned how to stay focused. You know they had amazing facial recognition software before a lot of other companies in the industry had it. But the executives didn't know what they had. They uh, were being approached by DARm and other agencies to use the facial ex- recognition software for government purposes, and uh, the principals thought that it would be invasion of privacy to do this, the biometrics and uh, they wanted to use the biometrics into kind of a game ultimately what happened is because they raised money and because the um investors had a lien against the ip when they ran out of money it ended up that the defense department got that ip so what they had tried to keep away from the department of defense ultimately ended up there but you know they could have made a lot of money if they had had more open minds what they had built the facial recognition software now is you know something that's a whether you like it or not part of travel even getting through airport security now facial recognition is being you know predominantly used over and above even identification so this is part of the reality of you know creating a safe environment to travel particularly on airplanes that people feel safe and part of it is making sure that people that are verified to get on the planes uh, and also not have to go through intense security. So that was one thing. Um, but iMatic ran out of money, so that was unfortunate. But uh, I was hired by Bradford to run their e-commerce division. They were a collectible company, very, very successful, privately held company. And they're still around today. At the point I was there, they were probably doing $500 million a year in sales. And they were primarily selling collectibles like plates and trains and music boxes. Back in the day when there was a lot of print, so they were running ads on parade or the back cover of those magazines you'd get them in the Sunday papers. Today, a lot of their um, advertising is through email and digital, but uh, they were very, very, very successful. So I learned a tremendous amount about e-commerce at the Bradford Group.
2: It sounds like you were a little ahead of the ahead of your time at Marvel and also at iMatic with dot-com boost and then also the facial recognition as well.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting kind of seeing how things unfolded. Even at Bradford Group, the um, e-commerce division was very small and they really didn't realize until I think later that it should have been much more of an area of emphasis. You know, they were so conditioned on print. And newsprint and even coupons that you'd get these boxes of, or envelopes of coupons and they'd have these ads for music boxes or dolls or trains or whatever and they didn't understand that digital was the future and so that's where I ultimately started the experiment with vacation rentals was creating my own website I had my my first vacation rental when I was with the Bradford group in Florida and started advertising it on uh, my own website and Created advertisements on places like VRBO, and I—it was pretty amazing what you could do.
1: As you were saying, so in 2005, you started Vacation Rental Pros, which is now was rebranded VTrips. You got into it, but what really led you into the vacation rental management side of things, and what got you involved in that?
0: I think it's pretty pretty much the normal journey for most people that get into this. Where I started with one investment property that I used part of the time rented out. I generated so much rental income I bought another then I bought a third and then at that point people I knew started asking me if if they could participate so they started buying and I started managing their properties which I think is kind of what happens to a lot of people today is you know they start with one and then they have friends or family that ask them to start managing their properties and eventually I had so many properties I was managing kind of moonlighting that I had like 20 properties at that point and um, started you know basically went full-time to do vacation rental pros at that point but it was really just organic so to speak where it wasn't necessarily a plan it was more of an opportunity
1: and so getting and having a company you know going through a recession what what did you learn during that time and what advice would you have for somebody as, as we possibly might be approaching a recession
0: well the good thing for me was i went into the recession very lean and I stayed lean and part of it what happened was I came into the vacation rental industry just as hosted systems were started and these you know these hosted systems allow you to do a lot of what used to be very labor intensive functions with um, essentially software and that software cost is reduced because there's so many users on the software and are constantly upgrading it so I was able to literally run a about 75 vacation rentals just by myself. And then as I hired people, it was very, very slow and steady. So just really containing cost and using technology to drive down your labor cost. And I think that's really what we're talking about right now at Vtrips. And we have a pretty big company now. We have a 1,000 employees. But the discussion is really, how do we use technology to gain savings? And you can think about all the different levels of technology. So, there's savings you can get from accounting. You definitely can get savings from your reservation team if you start to really take a look at how you manipulate overflow and call routing. And then, you know, we even have a Jamaican call center that takes a certain portion of the calls. So, just by taking a look at your flows, you know, you're going to gain some labor savings there. Going to digital locks means that you don't have people going to an office or doing some of the crazy stuff people used to do, which was creating literally printing out packets and putting keys in the packet and then having people show up. Now, everybody just goes and gets a a digital code. All the instructions are by email. Not only is it more efficient, but it's even better for the environment. You're not wasting all this stuff with with resources. So. You know these are the type of things we've done uh, laundry facilities which um you know it's not so much technology but it's efficiency by putting in equipment you gain efficiencies with with labor and and so we really looked hard our, at our linen facilities just make sure that we are operating them as effectively as possible those are all the things that really move the needle in terms of of margin.
2: And in the early years, it sounds like you, you know, got more properties by managing friends and family's properties and kind of, you know, more hitting the, hitting the road, like uh, acquiring just property by property. How has the past year been? I've read a few things and it seemed like the past year is, is uh, you had a great year.
0: That was interesting. The recession also was the first area where I started with merger and acquisition. And I did it just basically local companies. So it wasn't some master plan to expand nationally. It was opportunistically. Competitors who weren't using technology or were having a tough time, even with distribution of advertising, were contacting me about selling. And I bought five different companies. I averaged one per year. And that really made a difference because you definitely gain synergies as you start to, to consolidate. In the last year, we brought in a bunch of capital, and we've grown through uh, a lot of merger and acquisitions. So we've bought 10 companies uh, within the last year. So we, we've expanded our geographic footprint through that. And so that creates a whole set of challenges, but it also creates opportunity. And again, you're going to start to really see synergies as you consolidate. And, and that's really been you know, the biggest opportunity within the sector is being able to consolidate and, and gain synergies.
1: And so what's unique about the vTrips platform?
0: So right now, at least in the US, I, and I have traveled to Europe, but they it, it kind of operate a little different than the US. vTrips is one of really only two companies, Vicasa is the other, that truly has a platform. And what I mean by a platform is basically a centralized operation management executive team that can scale. And that is very different than... a. A lot of these companies that are coming out and buying essentially a portfolio of uh, companies, so they'll just buy a bunch of affiliated companies and throw a centralized management team. But they're not synergizing the tech stack; they're not really synergizing the management group and, and a lot of the accounting and and sales and marketing. We've done that, and when I mean scalable, that means can you scale from seven thousand properties, which we are now. To fifty thousand or hundred thousand without breaking, and you know that's the case with V trips because of how much time and effort we put into building a true technology platform. So that's what's distinguishing V trips from a lot of the other companies out there who have attempted to get into the sector. What's next for for V trips? Well, we've got a, quite a few things that are next, but I think the thing we're most excited about is we working with developers on purpose built inventory, brand new, purpose built. So Part of the conversation has been what's wrong with the industry. And and some of what's wrong with the industry is the product or the properties are older, worn down. In some cases, you really don't have as much control as you'd like over them. In some cases, they weren't even built to be a vacation rental. They were built to be a primary residence or a secondary residence. So what's exciting to us is Working with developers in brand new vacation rental inventory, where we not only get to help design the floor plan, but we uh, are working on uh, the furniture as well. Quite a few of them of these markets were the exclusive management company, which means we can control the rates, the cleaning, the maintenance, all of the things that are important, which lifts standards and lifts um, you know customer and guest satisfaction. So I'm very very bullish about the future of purpose built inventory. And uh, that's really a lot of where my focus is right now is talking to developers.
2: And you've obviously been successful in your past roles, being an entrepreneur to, you know, the CEO and founder of vTrips. Do you have any keys to your success or anything you'd like to share?
0: Well, you know, I would tell anyone that was starting a business that they need to really spend time, take courses at a college or whatever, but take accounting courses, learn how to read a P&L, profit and loss statement, learn how to read a balance sheet, learn how important it is to not only have a yearly operating budget, but uh, a monthly variance report. If you don't do that, you can get into trouble very, very fast. And I'm shocked. I go to conferences and I ask to see a show of hands of how many people do an operating budget, a yearly operating budget, and it's a fraction of people. People just are not paying attention to their financing. They're not creating a budget. They're certainly not doing variance reporting. And it's almost trial and error at that point. So, you know, that would be one of the biggest pieces of advice that I've given people is, you know, spend the time to understand how financing works and
1: accounting and and school yourself. That's great advice because as I advise companies, a lot of them startups, um, 99% you know, 99% of them, when I ask the question, are your financials in order, they say yes, and then I'll have, I've got a woman who's my kind of financial ninja who she comes in and she's like, nope, David, they're not in order. <laughs> we got to redo everything. We got to, they're not, you know, they don't have any schedules. They. So that's, uh, that is That is really good advice.
2: Well, awesome. Now we're going to head into the last section of the podcast here. This is where we just kind of talk about the industry, thoughts you have about where the vacation rental spot is. So first thing, anybody looking to get into hospitality or the vacation rental space besides the accounting aspect, any advice you'd give them?
0: Well, the advice I'd give them is what's your goal, right? So I think it's very easy because this industry is growing so fast. You know, We talked about the comic book industry, at least the print part of that was declining. Whereas vacation rentals, everything is going up, right? So the tide is rolling in. And partly because we take a look at vacation rentals, consumer awareness continues to increase. So when I first started with vacation rentals, Focusrite said only 11% of the US population even knew where to book a vacation rental. A lot of it was really weird and and there was a time where people would be mailing catalogs to people about, you know, booking a vacation rental. And and then there were places like VRBO and Craigslist. But now most people know they can find vacation rentals. Uh, Airbnb's have, you know has helped with that. And Expedia buying VRBO has helped. And then Booking.com. So, you know, category awareness has increased, but it's still like 60%, which lags far behind hotels, which, you know, are in the high 80s. So there's more room for category awareness. But the other thing is that the younger generation, millennials and younger, they prefer vacation rentals over hotel rooms because of, in in part, the experience aspect. And, you know, that group is very much into experiences, photography, individualism, and, you know, they can kind of showcase what's unique versus a hotel room, which is fairly generic so you know there's a lot of opportunity in the vacation rental as a result and there's so many different levels of areas of opportunity you could go into luxury you could just do niche so the first question i ask people is what is your goal and if their goal is they want to make a healthy amount of money but they don't want to kill themselves you know they don't want to manage a bunch of people you know i tend to talk to them about hey look you know quality over quantity will get you there right so if you want to be a high touch owner And you want to have 20, 30, 40 properties that are luxury. You can make really, really good money and not have all the headaches that you would have if you expand too much and then you have to have a lot of employees. So it's just really first and foremost. And David's probably had this conversation since he's advising entrepreneurs is asking them, what are your goals? What do you want to do? What makes you happy? What's going to make you happy? Yes. It's not always, you know, you have to grow. That's great. That's great. So you mentioned kind of the
2: the guest experience of the vacation rentals side of things. How millennials and the younger generations kind of are leaning more towards that way than than staying in hotels. Is there anything else that vacation rentals are doing that hotels should be taking note of?
0: We're getting close. So as hotel standards are dropping, right? So I don't know if you've been in hotels. I, I still do a lot of business travel, and one or two nights for one person a hotel makes more sense than a vacation rental, but standards have really dropped in hotels, right? So you don't even know if you're going to get cleaning. You don't know if the gym will be open or the ice maker will be working or unplugged or the restaurant open. Vacation rentals have the opportunity on um, kind of amenities and concierge service. And so we're really exploring things like guest portals and offering amenities to the guests before they arrive to really enhance their experience. I do think Brian Chesky is right in one aspect, not necessarily his execution, but the aspect that the experience is very important on this road. And if you can provide guests a better experience by allowing them access to amenities before they arrive, that's a win-win for everybody.
2: Absolutely. I actually just was having this discussion like during the booking process. If you're able to add any experiences onto your stay during that, I mean, that's a win for everybody right there.
1: So you touched on it earlier about, you know, some of the vacation rentals being worn down. What's the biggest issue facing the vacation rental space right now?
0: Well, that's one of them. That's not the biggest issue, David, but certainly standards, the fact that a consumer can book one vacation rental, even in the same complex, and it's different from another the next year. And it's based on the fact that you have individual owners, the individual owners are decorating the property differently the individual owners may have one unit that's renovated, one that's not. Now VTrips is trying to help by creating a rating system where the properties are rated. If you get to purpose build and you actually have exclusivity, you can then enforce furniture packages and furniture standards, which you know at least creates a better experience. You know, it's it's just not a great experience if you're in a property where it's not been professionally decorated or professionally constructed in a in a manner that's gonna give you the, the best vacation experience. So that those standards are are important and, and we're working on that. But the bigger issue right now, and it's all over the news media is vacation rentals being operated in areas where they really shouldn't be and really impacting the quality of life for residences in those areas. And and we're starting to hear more and more how they're affecting affordable housing, right? So this whole component which kind of peaked last year, but there were actually conferences where people were talking about buying, quote unquote, Airbnbs and, you know, the return on investment. And they were basically, people were paying money to go and hear people who were, you know, their tips of where to buy. And essentially, people were buying in marginal areas, right? So we could all probably agree that downtown areas where vacation rentals would be, pick an area, Chattanooga or Nashville, But they were going into neighborhoods outside of those areas where they could buy stuff cheaper. And sure, they could rent them a little cheaper, but they were creating friction with people who actually live there. So they moved from the downtown core, to areas outside the downtown core, and they were creating a lot of disruption for residents. And then conversely, which is what people are really upset about, is they were taking away housing and affordable housing and driving prices of housing up. And so in some of these areas this has become a flashpoint. Hawaii is certainly the biggest example where Honolulu is almost effectively banned vacation rentals partly because of this and in part there is a very very strong hotel lobby. But you know Hawaii is kind of the flashpoint of all of this. Maui now is is moved into this and and there's discussion of zoning out vacation rentals again because people were going up and buying places, not on the ocean or across the ocean or even a block from the ocean, but up in the hills where the residents were living and and they never, that was never where vacation rentals should have been. That's not where the tourists were designed to be. They were designed to be in those ocean beach areas and the residents were up in the hills. And if you go up in the hills and you start buying all the housing, you drive prices of housing up. And so that's created a tremendous amount of friction. And uh, you know that's where all the zoning stuff is coming from. Is is the friction that's been created in part either legally or illegally going into neighborhoods where vacation rentals didn't deserve. That's why vacation rentals got zoned out of Chicago, New York, a lot of the bigger urban areas. Uh, and that was really in part because Airbnb, at least initially, was blatantly allowing properties to list on their site that were completely illegal. They've changed some of that, but. That's part of what's happened.
1: And what are some, some ways that vacation rentals can use technology to, to generate more, more revenue? Well, distribution
0: is the biggest one. So right, so distribution is meaning getting your properties to sites like Booking.com, Expedia, VRBO, Airbnb, Google, Google Meta, there's Hopper now, there's Homes to Go. There's, we're probably distributed to 14 different sites. So technology can do that. We use pricing tools, which create some dynamic ability to kind of take a look at supply and demand and and create better pricing algorithms, smart home locks, which is, you know, you go to a property and you dial in the lock and it only works for the time that you're supposed to be there. And and then after you depart, you're not going to be able to use that code again to get back in. That's been a game changer for everybody. You know, those are some of the areas that really have helped
1: the vacation rental industry and and operators within it. Yeah, it's amazing how we've done several family trips and, you know, you always are in essence, for lack of a better term, using mobile key or digital entry for a vacation rental, but hotels still can't get it right. I still go to, I won't name the brand. I still go to a brand and they ask me when I check in on their app, (laughs) do I want a mobile key? I say yes, get to the front desk. They have no clue what's going on and I still get the plastic key.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy with the hotels, how far behind they are. And then even if you do go digital, you're not guaranteed that the digital key will work on the gym or the elevator. So unfortunately I have to ask for one of those VIN cards just because I'm not guaranteed to get into the gym with the mobile access. You know, you would think the hotels could get this right, but they just have lagged so far behind and, you know, those in readers are
1: just so outdated. Well, and we talk about it, we, we, you know, beat a dead horse, but, you know, it's funny, hoteliers have this impression that, hey, I, I use my app to get my Uber. I use the app to check in for my flight. And then I get to a hotel and hoteliers are like, oh, nobody wants to use an app. Nobody wants to use mobile when they're on property, but they've used it through the whole journey. And I've actually had people tell me that, that, you know, our guests don't want to use an app or don't want to use mobile. And it's, uh, it's mind-blowing. So what do you think's next for vacation rentals, whether it be technology or I, I like what you're saying about actually building to actually for a vacation rental. What's next?
0: Well, I think, you know, the supply is the biggest next step for the industry is to build a whole new generation of supply. And that doesn't mean just leisure. It'll also be urban markets. And you're starting to see that in some of the urban markets where towers are going up and. You know, I'm I'm pretty close to Miami, and there's 20 different projects that are um, 500 feet or more, including the the biggest building south of uh, New York City. I think it's going to be a Waldorf Astoria project, but it'll have uh, a huge component of living space, and all that stuff is zoned for vacation rentals. and And the salespeople are talking about you know the ability when you don't stay in your place to to rent it out, and so. You look at a place like Miami with all these skyscrapers going up and what they're basically communicating to the buyer is, hey, you know, when you're not using it, run it as a rental and they're really purpose built. You know, you're typically seeing smaller bedrooms, smaller bathrooms, but, you know, bigger living spaces, which is typical of, you know, the typical vacation rental model is, is you don't, you don't put as much emphasis on the bedrooms. That's also somewhat what we're seeing in some of the newer hotels, like Moxie is a good example of a Marriott brand where the rooms are quite tiny, but they have put all the emphasis on the uh, common space and getting people to socialize in those common areas. And I think that's a, you know that's where vacation rentals are heading to as well, which is why they've been so popular. You know, you don't want people to spend a lot of time in the bedroom; you want them out and about socializing with their friends or family.
2: Do you think is a metaverse going to play a role in the in the vacation rental side of things?
0: Well, we do a little bit with social media. I think Google is the bigger elephant in the room. You know, Google Travel potentially is bigger than all the OTAs combined. So Google Travels, Google Air, Google Hotel, and Google is right now in the uh, beta version of uh, testing vacation rentals. And it's been so for a couple of years now. But I think once Google figures out how to distribute an unbranded category, it's going to be extremely powerful because, you know, Google has geo maps, Google has reviews, and it's an unbranded category. So at the end of the day, if somebody can bypass Airbnb and go directly through Google and save 10, 20%, they probably will because, you know, they want to know where is it located? What are the reviews like? You know what do the photos look like? Is it a trusted source? Google's verifying it's trusted. Okay, I'm going to book it via Google, which is you know effectively what they've done with Air, what they've done uh, with Hotel, and I mean Google has virtually unlimited resources, right? I mean as big of a market cap as Airbnb, I mean Google is just gigantic. Between all the different components of the company, they can just pour money into R and D that these other companies can't even keep up with. You know, and Barry Diller has been at the forefront of complaining about it. But unless somebody breaks up Google, I would say Google is going to be a big part of the future of the vacation rental industry.
1: Well, Steve, we're at the end of the podcast. We covered a lot of great areas. Anything that we missed? Any questions that we should have asked you that we missed? Yeah, you guys have been
0: thorough. So I appreciate the research for prior to the interview.
1: If you could let the audience know um, plug away anything you want to share or where they can you know where they can find out more
0: our website's vtrips.com so they can find 7000 properties there and hopefully uh, they've enjoyed vacation rentals and if they haven't
1: time to try them. All right great. Well that wraps it up for another episode of The Modern Hotelier presented by Stay Flexi. We thank you for your time and we'll see you again soon. Thank you. Made it to the end of the modern hotelier. Thanks
2: for listening. Make sure to subscribe and follow wherever you listen to your podcast. The modern hotelier is produced by Make More Media and presented by Stay Flexi. Stay Flexi is your modern operating system for independent hotels. If you're interested in learning more about Stay Flexi, you can go to stayflexi.com. Or if you'd rather talk to me instead, feel free to shoot me a message on LinkedIn or email me at steve.karen at stayflexi.com. Thanks and have a great day.